The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Grab your Bibles if you have one. We'll have our scripture for today on the screen. Uh, but we continue in our study through the book of Ephesians, our new year uh, uh, teaching through the book of Ephesians, uh, remembering that this is God's word to us. This is God's uh, love uh, story to us. And today we pick up uh, just in week two, starting in verse three. We didn't cover much, uh, we didn't get through a lot last week. We won't go at the same pace, I promise, through the whole series. Uh, we're going to speed up here. Uh, starting uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. This series that we introduced last week first is about the gospel. It is about telling us, well, what is this story of salvation? What is the good news that God gives to us? And second, we learned that it is how the gospel transforms our everyday life. And as we learn, the order of this is very important. We do not first transform our life and become new people and become changed people and change our habits and actions, and then we receive the good news and are loved by God. But the order is the opposite. We are loved by God. We are, His grace is lavished upon us. We are uh, accepted in His love so that we would then take His gospel and be transformed in every area of our life. We said, you are not what you do, but what Jesus has done. You are not what has been done to you, but what Jesus has done to you and for you. What you do is, does not determine who you are, but who you are determines how we live. And this is the order that we remember in God's good news. The order or grammar of the gospel is that we are faithful to God because, the grace, because of the grace that we have received. And the grace that we have received is amazing, as Paul so well fleshes out in this passage. The grace that we have received, all that God has done for us, is so awesome. Have you ever had one of those moments that, you are, that are so good that you do not want to pass? It is so incredibly significant, but you know that as the moment passes, you know that feeling will be fleeting and you will forget it and you just want to hold on to that as, as closely as you can. You want to hold on to it as long as possible, just a little longer. 
the moment maybe that you see your child born. It's amazing and chaotic and you're so filled with all those different emotions. You don't know whether to laugh or cry or, or throw up. You don't know how to feel, but you're feeling this is, this is great. This is important. I know that this is amazing and I just want to hold on to this, this significant thing that has happened. Or that moment where you take a bite of your favorite burger. Now, I understand the, the magnitude of both feelings are not the same. Uh, but that feeling where you're just like, this, I don't want this from the first bite to the last. It's just so good. I'm just enjoying this so much. You don't want it to end. This passage, verse 3 through 14, in our English translation, translation is broken up into five different English sentences. But in the Greek, it is one long sentence. It is one long sentence with Paul's final punctuation at the end of verse 14. Paul is so caught up. He's so excited. He's so wrapped up in the praise of God and everything that God has done for him. He bursts into the room as if he is just talking, saying, you're never going to believe what has happened to us. And he talks and talks and he's out of breath, joyful. And he's, the whole thing over 200 words is one sentence long. He is so excited. He begins to tell us what God has done for us. And it's so good that Paul just does not stop. He keeps telling us good news after good news. And even if just the one good news was enough, he, just, he goes further and says, but you're never going to believe this other good news. And you think that's great. Hear this good news. And he keeps building it on one after another. It's my kids opening up Christmas presents on Christmas morning. This is what I've always wanted. This is what I've always wanted in my whole life. And then they see another package with their name on it and they tear it open and say, no, this is what I always wanted. And then the next gift, no, this is what I've always wanted. This is all that I have always wanted. And then they jump and make, you know, snow angels in the carnage of wrapping paper and just like, this is all that I've always wanted. I have to give credit to our, one of our deacons, Bill, for that analogy. He shared that with me. This is what we've always wanted. This is what we've always wanted. What Paul tells us in this passage, it's what we've always wanted. It's what we've always needed. It's so good. Good enough to get out of breath for. I've agonized over this passage this week. And here's why. It has nothing to do with the, uh, the difficulty of its content, but because I know that I'm not going to do it justice. I know I'm not going to do it justice for how good it is. And I want you to know how good it is. And, and I, feel, I feel limited and imperfect in my ability to communicate, to show you how amazing it is of what God has done for us in Christ. I know I'm going to fail, but that's okay because this is what I get to do is I get to, I get to hold a microphone to the word of God and I just get to let God tell you what he's done for you and hope that as, as you do that and as you hear it and listen to it, that your heart is moved by it and you are encouraged by it. And you rest in it and hope in it and trust in it and say, yes, this is good. And then you will spend the rest of your life trying to unpack what it means for you. That's what I want you to do. That's what I hope will happen. And Paul is so gleeful. He's so gleeful. He, he, he's so jubilant about what God has done. And he just wants to tell us that we are blessed, that we are blessed in Christ. That you are blessed in Christ. And he wants you to know the significance of that, that you are blessed in Christ and what that means for your whole life. And if you know it and if you grasp it and you understand it, you, your whole life will change. 
You too will be, will be out of breath. You too, your soul will be filled with such good news that you will be filled with such joy and out of breath just saying, can you believe it? What wonderful mercy, what wonderful goodness, what wonderful grace. Like that song we just sang, I, I don't want to sing of this for eternity. I just want to keep singing of it and never stop. In this amazing out of breath song of praise, Paul shows us that we have been blessed by God. He shows us the cause of our blessing, the distinct features of our blessing, and he shows us the fruit of our blessing. Let's look at this wonderful passage. First, the cause of our blessing. Right away, Paul tells us why we have been blessed. Who made the first move? Why have we been blessed? It was God. We have been blessed by God. He has blessed us. Verse 3 says, blessed be to God. Blessed be to God who has blessed us. Bless here can mean to speak well of. And so what Paul is saying, it's a doxology, it's a, it's a praise. God is saying, let's speak well of God together because he has spoken well of us. Isn't this amazing? He has blessed us. Let's bless him because he has blessed us. He's been, let's be kind to him because he has been so kind to us. We have been blessed because God has blessed us. Why did God bless us? Why did God bless us? Because he did. That's what Paul says. You want to know why you are blessed in Christ? Why the, the, the righteousness of Christ uh, and his perfect obedience to his Father has been applied to you? You want to know why God is merciful? Because he is. That's it. That's why you have been blessed. Because you are. I know I'm frustrating you. He blessed us because he did. And, and we're really not comfortable with this kind of answer. And I, I know this. We don't we don't, we don't desire this in life. We, don't, we expect much more in life for questions that we might have. Why did you do that? I want to know the motivation behind your actions that you just did that. I want, you to, I want you to tell me what motivated you to do that. Why did you do that? Why do you want to return this item? What's wrong with it? Is it broken? Does it not fit? We want to know the reason for it. Why did you hit your sister? What's going through your head? You know, we want to know, give me the answer to the actions that you have just done. But we're okay with giving answers that seem a lot like God's or Paul's here. Mom, why can't I jump in the puddle? Because you can't, right? So we're okay giving answers like that. But we don't like hearing answers like that. Why has, why has God blessed you? Because he did. All creation, at creation, immediately as God makes our first parents, Adam and Eve, we know that God simply blessed them. The Bible says that he made them, he created them for one another, and then he says, and he blessed them. They did not ask for the blessing. They had yet to be able to do anything of any value or merit to deserve blessing. We just know that God did. Why? Because he did, because he is a God who blesses. He simply blessed them because he's gracious and he's good. And so right away, Paul desires, as he goes into such great news, he, he desires to chip away at this common idea that we have that in order to be blessed by God, we must do something. We must somehow find ourselves on God's blessing radar. We must, we must do something so God will notice us and pay attention to us. Sure, we acknowledge our limitations and our weaknesses and our sin, but we want to at least get God to know that we are desiring of his blessing. And maybe he'll pay attention. We must suffer, maybe, and that'll get God's attention. We must fast or pray or make large financial contributions or engage in tireless spiritual activity to make or to, to manipulate God into blessing us, to get blessing out of his hand. 
And I want to let God speak to you this morning from His Word that your blessing is not contingent on you. And it's not contingent on your ability to manipulate it from God. But blessing will come to you because of a good father. As our passage tells us, as he's described here, he delights in blessing his children with good gifts because of what Jesus has done, not because of what of you or me are capable of doing. He blesses us because he's good. He blesses us because he is a God who is a God of blessing. And the gifts just keep on rolling. <laughs> they keep on coming. <clears throat> I heard someone say, to try to manipulate God to bless you is like trying to make water wet. You don't need to do that. It's already there. And we'll see this in what follows. Let's look at these distinct features of His blessing. The distinct features of this wonderful blessing in which God has blessed us. He's blessed us in Christ He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. When we become Christians, we do not simply receive a care package from God. When we become Christians, he does not give us a blessed package that is filled with all of those things that we need, like forgiveness and mercy and pardon and a future hope. We receive Jesus himself. When we become Christians, we receive Christ. We're united to Christ so that all that he has achieved through his perfect righteousness is ours. It is credited to us by faith. It is given to us by faith. We receive him. The great treasure that we receive is a relationship with Christ himself. And if God is always pleased with Jesus as his perfectly faithful son, and you and I are united to Christ by faith, then God is always pleased with you and you are the recipient of God's unending affection and pleasure. Everything and always, it's yours in Christ. When did he do this? When did he set this in motion? When did he think this up? This amazing plan of our union with Christ and receiving all the blessings of God coming from our relationship with Jesus is the result of God, not us. It's the result of God's planning and not ours. Our salvation began in the mind of God before the beginning of time when our God and Father planned to save a people for himself. He planned to adopt us as his own sons and daughters. He planned to redeem us from our sins by sending a Savior, his own Son, Jesus Christ. He planned to sanctify us, to make us holy. He planned to bring us to himself in glory. And Paul begins with God's purposes. Paul begins with all of this good news, all that I'm about to tell you, all that you have in Christ is because of God's purposes and his plans. And right at the start, he underlines that all these blessings of salvation come to us because God chose us. You know, the English phrase for chose us is not a great translation for the original Greek. It really should say, no, actually chose us is a perfect English translation of what this means. God chose us. He selected us. He initiated with us. He deliberately blesses, chooses his people. He lovingly, deliberately, and intentionally bestows his grace on his people. 
He reveals himself out of his own choice. And he lavishes never stopping grace on us. And it's exactly what it is meant to mean. God's deliberate. God is, he chooses, blesses, he intentionally gives himself to his people. And this, all, all part of his eternal plan of the one who, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In verse 11, all of these things are part of God's plan to say to us, I do what I want. And what I want will always happen. And I want to bless you. And this has to do with my intention and not yours. You know, and by listing so many of these blessings, these distinct features of our blessing, these verses are meant to, to set for us and all who read it. It is meant to show us God's agenda for the Bible's saving message. This passage is so beautiful. It's meant to show let me tell you what the gospel is. Let me tell you about the saving message that we are to find in all of Scripture that, that is woven together, the thread of God's saving plan of redemption for his people consolidated in this beautiful, passionate poem. This 200 words of, of, and just one sentence is all here. He's intending to show us here's what's, what God's agenda is. And this listing is, is meant to contain virtually the whole message of salvation. If you want to know what it means to be saved and, and what, what the, the nature of that salvation is, this is a great passage for you. It begins with election. It begins with election, that all of God's blessing of salvation would come to us by the merit of Christ and not by our merit. This is called grace. This is called grace. For grace to be grace, it must be unearned. For grace to be grace, it must be given. For grace to be grace, it must be something outside of us that is given to us, that does not originate within us. And not because of something good we have done, but, but the good who God is that, is that is given to us. We may ask, why did God choose us? Have you ever asked this question? Why did you choose me, God? I have asked that question. I've actually yelled it. I've yelled it alone. <laughs> but I've wondered why. And, and, and in a still voice in my, in my soul, I hear God just simply saying, because I love you. And then I say, well, why do you love me? I mean, let's get to the bottom of this. What do you see? What will you see? Show me the crystal ball of something that you see in me that would cause you to love me. And... Uh, and I think I just, I, he just kind of silent at that point. Or I just, he doesn't give me the answer that I want. I want him to say, well, because you're, you're going to be good. You're going to do good things. You're going to do good things for the church, or you'll get your act together, or you know, I know you're a hard worker. I want him to say those things. I want to look inside me and say that, that he validates something in me, but that's not what I hear through his word. He did it because he does, and he planned to bring glory to his grace working in me and working in you. That's why he loves us. Because it is his plan to bring attention to his grace, attention to his goodness, so he may be glorified, we may find joy and hope. You know, the idea of election, the idea of predestination, it stirs up a lot of controversy. I know I've been a part of these conversations, and I'll admit the relationship between God's election and man's responsibility is complex and mysterious. 
I admit the difficulty in understanding the will of God behind those who come to know Jesus and those who don't come to know Jesus. I understand the complexity of it and the, the mystery of it, the confusion of it. And I admit that we have not gotten to the bottom of it, of how it all works out. But as we wrestle with this, as we ask these questions, as we desire to know God's blessing to us, we must never take our eye off the ball. You know, baseball was my sport and my only sport. And the one cardinal rule that stood the test of generations, I learned it, you learned it, your parents learned it, they learned it, keep your eye on the ball. It's just that one cardinal rule. Every, we all know it. Keep your eye on the ball. You know, when we're batting, we, we look to the fence of where we want to hit it. We're distracted by the crowds. We look down to first base of where we want to go. But we need to keep our eye on the ball. And the ball is God's word. The ball is what God has shown us. There are things we don't know of how it works. We, there are things that are still a mystery to us of God's will, how it all works together, and how, is, how it means that he is good, even when there are those who do not come to know Jesus. We have to see the words in Scripture. We have to keep our eye on the ball where it says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The Father chose us that we should be holy and blameless, not because we are holy and blameless. And so Paul is saying, keep your eye on the ball. God has done all this. God has planned all this so that the fruit of it, the effect of it, would be that you would now be a good and holy and humble and, 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 and loving person, not because of all those things. So as we wrestle and as we think and as we even have healthy uh, gracious debate on, on these issues. We must keep our eye on the ball of God's word and hear what he says. We're not loved because we are good. We are loved in spite of our failure to be good, but so that we would be by his love and by his purpose and by his will in our life, we would become his good. We would receive his good and do works that are glorifying to him. I know that this is, this is not what many of you have been raised to believe. I know this is not what even some of you currently believe right now. I was taught growing up when I was young that when you lost a tooth and you put it under your pillow late at night, whatever, I don't want to spoil it for anybody if we have any little kids in here, but you know what? I was taught things when I was a kid that are just not true. I was taught things that I had to relearn. And it's okay, it's okay that when you currently believe something, what you currently believe and you come confronted by God's word, if those two things are different, it is okay. It is okay for us, to, that is what it means to be sanctified, to continue to grow. We take what we have always known and believed and trusted in, we come to God's word and we say, God, would you shape me? Would you transform me? Would you change my course? Would you help me believe who you are so that I can know you? Part of growing in our faith is maintaining a commitment to having our beliefs and our habits and practices and values and dreams and aspirations and everything shaped by God's word. And we are all on that journey. No matter how convinced we are, we are all still on that journey and have to come to God's word humble and say, God, I come to you as an imperfect person with limited intelligence and understanding, acknowledging that I've been shaped by my surrounding, my family, my culture, my friends, my church, shape me according to your word. We keep our eye on the ball. And Paul tells us that recipients of God's grace are average and, sin and sinful people who have been loved by God. We are just average and sinful people who have been loved by God. That is it. There is nothing in us that makes God love us. 
The reason for his love for us lies within himself. It lies in him from start to finish. It is grace. It is favor unearned. It is sheer, complete, and utter mercy to us. And this truth will shape our whole life. Paul says this truth, if you grasp this, it will shape and transform every area of your life. When you know the sheer grace of God, the favor that is unearned, the love of God that's been lavished upon you before you even had an opportunity to love God or be obedient, that will shape your relationships. It'll shape your work. It'll shape your worship. It'll shape your attitudes and everything about them. Salvation means redemption. It is the payment the payment, it is, it's the payment of a price to set us free. Redemption is redeeming us and setting us free and buying us back. It's a transaction. The payment was paid in verse 7. It was paid by the blood of Christ that releases us from our sins. We are saved. We are forgiven. All of that was accomplished because of Jesus and him paying the penalty for us. It tells us that we've been, in this word picture, that we've been released from a prison of sin Jesus paid our bail, he paid our debt, he broke the chains of death's hold on us, and all that was accomplished through Christ. Salvation means adoption. What a beautiful word, a beautiful idea and practice. We understand that on, in, in our lives, but what a beautiful picture of God's relationship between us and, and him. The legal act by which God makes us previously orphaned in sin, he makes us sons and daughters in Christ adopts us into his family. Salvation means reconciliation. You know, in the beginning of this passage, Paul says, he says we a lot. He says we and we and we. And here he's referring to the ethnic Jews in the family of Abraham. Paul is saying we, we God's chosen people from eternity past, the, the, the ethnic Jews, God has gathered together. And, and they all understand that, yes, we know these stories of God's sovereign choice of us. And then he says you, and he transitions halfway, three-quarters of the way down this passage. And then he goes, you. And now he's talking to the Gentiles. He's talking to those who have previously outside of the family of God. He says, now you have heard and you have believed and you have found salvation in Jesus. And from eternity past, God has desired to bring together one big covenant family, both Jew and Gentile. He says, it, we're bringing together through Christ one new ethnic people, one new people in Christ, chosen by God, knowing Him and finding salvation. And it's all because of Jesus. Now, and because of Jesus, everyone and anyone can be adopted into the family of God. No distinction based on ethnicity. No distinction based on past choices. No distinction based on, on our ability or, or probability of success. But on Christ. Anyone can come into this family. God's plan was always to have a huge family of restored people forgiven by Jesus. And he's doing it. He has done it. And because salvation by grace has nothing to do with what we have done, it, only ends, uh, it not only ends our alienation with God, it ends our alienation with one another. The gospel of grace forbids us from disparaging anyone because of race, disparaging anyone because of their uh, young or old, rich or poor, male or female. 
if we are saved by grace, then we, then we have no permission to feel morally superior to anyone for any reason. If we all share the same privilege of grace in Christ, there's no room for racial pride or disdain for the poor or even hatred for those who have wronged us. The gospel leads us to be humble, humble knowing that we are spiritually bankrupt and in need of God's grace. And also it leads us to be gracious, not worrying about people not worrying about what they deserve or, or if they're deserving of our respect, but giving our love and charity to everyone. And finally, salvation means this. It means sanctification and glorification, in which God completes the work that he has begun in us, making us spotless and as, as beautiful as his own son. And this is that past. These are, the, these are the details of this good news that God has done for us, that Paul sings about. This section talks a lot about, it, talk, it mentions the Trinity. It shows us the work of all the members of the Trinity. It says the Father chooses, the Son redeems and atones for, and the Holy Spirit carries out this plan of God. But the main focus is Jesus. The main focus is Christ. This amazing message of salvation communicates that all of God's blessing come to us through our relationship and union with Jesus. So all this stuff that the Trinity is doing, God choosing, Jesus saving, the Holy Spirit carrying, it all happens, it flows through the purpose of Christ and His work for us. And so we need to pause. Pause and meditate on the grace Paul is describing here in this list. Just pause and look at all the good that God has done for you. Nothing in there based on your record, nothing in there based on your character, Nothing in there based on your ability to endure in the disciplines of what he's called you to. Depends on Jesus. The main focus is Christ. He is our salvation, for in him we receive everything that we need to be saved, everything that we need to grow, and everything that we need to have a hope that is secure in his promise. Everything we need is in Christ. We pause on that, pause on this love, pause on this good news, this blessing. By God's grace, we will be persuaded of its wonder and power. And what will result, what will be the fruit of this reflection and belief will be trust in God. A trust in God. That is the fruit of this blessing. Trust in God is the result of truly knowing who he is and what he has done for us. How suspicious Christians are when things happen that are not according to our plan. How suspicious you and I become of God's goodness and his grace when things don't happen the way that we want them to. Do you know what I mean? Something happens in our life that is difficult and hard, and our first reaction often is, hmm, you know, this doesn't sound like a loving thing that a loving God would do. Maybe I have you wrong. Maybe you're not as loving as I hoped you would be. I hope I have it right about you, but is God really for us? How suspicious we become when things don't happen the way that we want. You know, God's people have always struggled with trusting God forever. They, they, they started in the Garden of Eden. The, the first sin stemmed from a failure to trust in God and His promises and in His truth. And there's this gut-wrenching passage and conversation that God has with his people spoken to us through the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament. And God tells his people, 
I love you so much. I love you so much. I want you, guys, I want you to know that I love you so much. And you know how they respond? They respond with this. How have you loved us? What do you mean? How have you really loved us? Have you ever felt that? If you have children, as, you ever felt that? We, you do for your kids and you love them and you protect them and you shepherd them. and You're, you're, fault, you're, you're full of fault, I'm sure, and, and you have weaknesses. And You ever felt that? And you hear your child say, what have you ever done for me? You don't love me, you hate me, and I hate you. God, choosing these people, he says, I love you so much. And they say, how? And you know what he does? He reminds them of his covenantal love. He reminds them of the story that he has told to them. He reminds them of their story of how he's brought them out of slavery. He reminds them of his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He reminds them, he says, Jacob, I have loved, and Esau, I have chosen, or hated. He says, I have loved you. I have chosen you. Out of the womb, I have chosen you, and I've chosen to be your God, and I've chosen you to be my people, and that didn't have anything to do with you. And even as you fail, and even as you sin, and even as you break my covenant with you and worship other gods, I have continually remained faithful to you. And you say, how have I loved you? I have never given up on you, even as you continually give up on me. Eventually, sending his son to die in our place so that nothing could separate us from the love of God, so that we would be secure as his forever people. And we say so often, how has God loved us? What has he done for you lately? We feel that when things go wrong. Whatever happens in life, God is ever faithful. Whatever happens in life, God is ever faithful to work with and through all that happens in your life to accomplish his will to keep you in his love to the praise of his glory. He will do it. God's love for you is not simply found in what you and I can see. In this passage, we see that we need to be reminded that God's love is often found in the things that we cannot see. You can't see exactly how he chose you before you were born. You cannot see exactly how God has put in place a complex and multifaceted plan of events to bring the gospel news to you through a particular preacher or friend or podcast or scripture passage that you stumbled upon that moved your heart and, and initiated this string of events that caused you to put your trust in Jesus. You cannot see what is happening in heaven behind the curtains that leads you through life and to trust in Jesus. You cannot see exactly how Jesus, by dying on the cross, can apply the, the work of his atonement to your sins. You can't see the Holy Spirit working in your heart and making you new and declaring you innocent even though you are a sinner. You cannot see all that. And you cannot see how he preserves in heaven his promised inheritance for you, waiting for you. When your body fails and your spirit ascends to be in the presence of Jesus, you cannot see how exactly that will happen, and you will not know it until it happens. So much, so much of God's love for you and I is not in what we can see. So much of it is in what we do not see, and yet what has been accomplished, and in what we trust in. Because God is faithful and has never gone back on his promises. You cannot see how you today are in God's sovereign plans. And I can't see it either. But the fruit 
of our prayer, the fruit of God's blessing, the fruit of God's grace, it wells up into our hearts and allows us to trust. It allows us to look on God's track record. It allows us to look on His promises. It allows us to look on the work that He has done with His people ever since the beginning when He rushes into the chaos of sin in the garden and says, I will fix this and it will come at great expense to me. And then we see Jesus going to the cross knowing that at any minute he could take himself away from that and off of that and, and, and be free from that pain, but enduring the cross because he loves us, because he desires to be united with us in love. And so it's still possible to believe. It is possible to believe and to rest and to hang our entire life and meaning and purpose and goals, aspirations on, on this good news. Not only possible, we're told to believe it. We are told to hold on to it. And by faith, we're told to trust in his love for us. It's a good reason to be out of breath. It's a good reason to be out of breath by reflecting on these things. Reflect on it. Come back to it. Believe it and trust in it. All that he has done, he will not give up on you. Let's pray.